I'm Kara from Burlington, Vermont. I'm Andrew from Long Island. I'm Ben from Louisiana. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've never heard of my guest, Niall Rogers, you've certainly heard his music. He's one of popular music's most legendary songwriters and producers, as well as a prodigious performer. He's worked with groups and artists, including but not limited to, I'm doing this from memory, Duran uh, Duran, Madonna, the B-52s, David Bowie, and his own group, Chic, recorded monster, epic, over-the-top hits like this one, Le Freak. Nile Rogers, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Hey, Jesse. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be had. I, um, <laughs> I was reading... So in the first couple of chapters of uh, your new book, which is called Le Freak, it was sort of a continuing series of revelations of just outrageous family situations yeah so i let's start um you, you were born in the very beginning of the 1950s in uh, new york mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about uh your mother your father and um the man who had the most fatherish role in your life your stepfather yes my, my mom uh was really cool girl um she was actually born in jersey but uh by the time I was born, she had moved to New York City. Uh, my biological father is Niall Rogers Sr. He was a percussionist who was sort of popular at the time. He played with a guy named Paul Whiteman, um, who was known as the King of Jazz. And tell me about your, your stepfather, Bobby. Uh, my my uh, stepfather, uh, my mom married Bobby, I think, like in the early 60s, um, or maybe even the late 50s. And Bobby was uh, Jewish, incredibly handsome, maybe one of the coolest guys I've ever known. If you, you called your uh, mother and stepfather by their first names, and if you had told me that and you were born in, you know, I was born in 1981 or even 1966 and you were seven years old in 1973 or something like that, I don't think that would be that surprising. But I, I imagine that in the late 1950s, early 1960s, a, a black lady and a Jewish guy right. uh, married and living together <laughs> with a few different kids by different people, calling them by their first names in a semi-open marriage right. was pretty crazy. I would say it was a very open man. <laughs> wasn't anything semi about it. <laughs> were you aware of the way that you were culturally different from your peers? That you had these hipster and uh, later to a growing extent junkie parents and 
they were, you know, they had their artsy friends over. I all I can imagine. You don't describe it too specifically, but I just imagine a lot of people in black turtlenecks snapping instead of clapping. Absolutely, um. <laughs> it was almost a caricature of the beatnik scene. Um, I remember when this television show called Dobie Gillis came on, and they had this character Maynard G. Krebs. I was like, "That's my man. I know Maynard." Um, you know, it didn't seem weird to me. Actually, other people's families seemed weird because everybody in my immediate circle. Um, were they were like my parents so everybody talked that hipster talk everybody's like hey you know the super slow junkie thing hey nah what's that they actually they, no one ever called me Nile. i was put but you know hey put what's happening um did you see uh strangers on a train yeah that hitchcock is a bitchcock you know it was all that kind of, it was all it was all that kind of stuff and i was a kid so it was normal it was completely normal and the amount of gay people the amount of um i mean it was a colorful crowd the other thing about your childhood as as you describe it in your book is that you were in a thousand different places and also nowhere. I mean, you were living with your, your two grandmothers. You had, you know, this, it, it just feels like the, there was, ne- it, I don't hear from you telling your story any time where you could be like, this is the place where I am me and not where I have to have my dukes up. Well, that's almost true. Um, when the hippie movement became really popular, that was the first time I felt really, really comfortable. Um, from, a, from a very early age, I used to, I developed insomnia really young. And uh, I'd stay up all night, uh, much to the discomfort of the adults in my world, um, because I'd have a light on or the television on or something like that, and they'd get pissed off. So I started to run away and sleep on the train and then sneak back in the house before they'd wake up in the morning. So one day when I, when I was a lot older, I was about uh, 15 or 16, I had just moved back to New York from Los Angeles and um, I snuck out to uh, sleep on the subway and I ran into a hippie and, uh, and this guy sort of took me under his wing. And from that moment on, I never, um, I never really slept at home again, at least not for any lengthy period of time. But um That night that I met this guy, we went and we slept in a crash pad. And it was a room filled with bodies, everybody lying on the floor on mattresses and wall-to-wall mattresses. And we smoked from a big hookah. And it was that communal life that made me feel comfortable because I always felt like someone had my back. The last time I visited my my aunt in Washington, D.C., who's uh, probably just about your age, um, she told me about going to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And she's African American, and she she was just in her closet, and she pulled out this huge peace sign that she had in the back of her car, and she's like, "Oh, I put this in the back of my car for when I drove to Woodstock." And her memory of Woodstock that means was, she's a little older than me. She had a driver's license. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so she she and but not much because she's the kind of lady right, who no. was doing that stuff at sixteen. <laughs> so she. Um, she said to me, her recollection of Woodstock was this, that she got there, she looked around and saw all the white people and thought, oh, I'm the only person here to see Sly. Right. <laughs> and I wonder if you had any self-consciousness about race 
being in a hippie world that was very, you know, it was partly about eliminating race as a category, but it was also very racialized. Yeah, it was very real. Um, I, I was I was lucky because um, I lived in a certain part of New York. I lived in Greenwich Village, and even when I moved to the Bronx. Um, all of my friends were sort of, they, they were black hippies, they were white hippies, Puerto Ricans. It was, we were from this really eclectic, unusual mix of people. My best friends um, were deadheads. All the deadheads I knew were black. Um, some of the musicians that I played with played with, uh, uh, you know, Leopold Stokowski's sons, the, the genius head of the American Symphony Orchestra. So we were, we were a very cool group it wasn't um the racism that we used to feel mainly came from the outside world in the hippie culture um i came along during the time of of the white panthers john sinclair the mc5 david peel and the lower east side the stooges so i i come from a, a background where a lot of the musicians um whatever racism and racial problems that you had in society that would go away in the context of a band. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician and record producer Nile Rogers. His new book is called Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. In 1970, Nile Rogers met bassist Bernard Edwards and formed the Big Apple Band. They backed the R&B group New York City on the hit I'm Doing Fine Now. Let's hear a little bit of it. playing with a sort of traditional R&B group touring the country and that group who had had a big hit and um, had uh, opened for the Jackson 5 didn't end up having a lot of other chart success and you were playing with other groups uh, on and off and this sort of ran from the early 70s into the mid-70s when disco started to happen for real. I wonder if you could describe to me just aesthetically, what the difference was between the disco records that started to uh, that started to percolate in the mid seventies and the R and B records of uh, just a couple of years earlier. Basically, what had happened there was a, a sort of political, uh, spiritual, and musical convergence of all of these disparate, um, seemingly unconnected vibes, and what happened was disco was the sort of party that said, come on in, everybody's invited, you know, the water's fine. And I noticed that um, the jazz guys that I used to follow religiously were all of a sudden starting to get hit records that were on the same charts as the R&B artists. And then every now and then they would cross over to the pop and rock artists. And it wasn't really called disco at the time. It would later be called disco but it, it at the beginning it was just sort of R&B it was groove it was funk it was dance music it was some other thing but it had this shared DNA of jazz and R&B but it was very open 
And when I heard that happening and I saw it on the charts, the, the, the time had finally come where I knew where I belonged, where I had a place that I could do my jazzy, classical, wacky stuff and also write commercial hooks. And the very first song I composed for that style was a song by my band Sheet called Everybody Dance. And with these really hip chord changes, but I superimposed this a, a ridiculously simple melody. And I wrote, Everybody dance, do-do-do-do, clap your hands, clap your hands. And I remember I played that for Bernard Edwards the first time, and it was all complicated with these hip jazz chord changes. And he said to me, uh, my man, uh, you know, it's happening, but uh, what the fuck does do-do-do-do mean? And I said, well, you know, it's the same thing as la-la-la-la. He said, well, why don't you say that? And I said, because do-do-do-do is hipper. I said, if you listen to all these, like, these records, you always hear him go, do-do-do-do-do-do. No one's going la 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 la. It was like the difference between hip and being, you know, like a boy scout around a campfire. So I stuck that in Everybody Dance, and Chic was off and running. to that song i hadn't listened to it in a while and the thing that struck me was just the absurd complexity of the baseline of <laughs> that song ridiculous. because i mean it is it is um like a lot of dance records from that period the bass the bass is a really important part of the melody of the, that song but it is just going all over everywhere I yeah mean, it is there's a thousand different things happening absolutely and it's interesting to me that one of the things that typified those chic records was the confluence of the simplest of simple, that they were they were driven by the classic disco beat. I mean, with a lot of other stuff going on around it on the drums as well. But the central thing is that classic disco beat. They're driven by lyrics like, I mean, they're all called dance something. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like every, every song is like, dance, we're all dance, dancing dance. together. I'm enjoying dancing. <laughs> like, hey, isn't dancing great? And it, But at, then there are also these other things that are going on that are like laughably complicated for a pop yeah. record. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, that's what we call, um, in Chic, that's what we used to call DHM, the deep hidden meaning. I, I as a writer... And the most complicated person in the world, maybe even as a person, I, you know, I'm, I'm ridiculous. Um, and that's because everything that I do is governed by these invisible voices in my head of my old music teachers. Um, what I call the jazz and classical police. Um, excuse me now, during the recapitulation, were you, you know, it's like, okay, well, the counterpoint, like, okay, guys. So that's the voices I always hear. 
every time I write a song, it's so complicated, it's ridiculous. And Bernard used to be the great um, divining rod to find the, 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 you know, the, the water that would save our lives because I was like, you know, this stuff is too complicated. And many times he would say to me, uh, you know, brother, you got five or six songs in here. <laughs> and he was right. We'd wind up writing five or six songs from a, an original idea that I would have. You also helped create a, another central distinguishing element of disco as a sound, which is that breakdowns and breaks. Right. Which, you know, I mean, obviously your song Good Times became the first, was transformed into the first huge hip-hop record, um, were a central part of what you were doing, which was something that you could do because you could make a lot, you could put a lot more music on a 12-inch record than you could on a 45. Correct. And so you had room to have something very complicated, break it all the way down to the simplest, sometimes even just a drum pattern. That's right. And then build it back up. The, the, the concept with Chic was we always, we believed our parts were clever. We were a part-playing band. And we always wanted to show it off. You know what I mean? So our, our basic philosophy was... You know, a song is just an excuse to go to a chorus, and a chorus is just an excuse to go to the breakdown. And that's really what we believed in. We just couldn't wait to get to the breakdown. And that was our, our thing. We wanted to show people how... The, the, the song was constructed and basically what we would do is we'd take it apart and then we'd rebuild it in the listener's ears so you could hear all those little parts come in because typically when you hear the full groove you actually don't really know what we're playing when I hear cover bands play chic songs I'm laughing I go that's what you think we're playing they don't get the subtleties they don't understand the upbeats going against the down and still sounding like it's it's all in the pocket because we have the four and the floor bass drum so we were always proud of what we did and we wanted to show people how hip it was and we also knew that breakdowns work live after a break, Nile Rogers will talk about producing for Diana Ross, David Bowie, and the first time that he saw Roxy Music. It was almost spiritual, I have to say. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. MaxFunCon 2012 is June 1st through 3rd. Join me and Jordan and Max Fun and celebrity guests for a weekend of creativity and laughter in the mountains of Southern California. It's basically the best three days you will ever live. Tickets are available now at MaxFunCon.com. Don't wait. Last year, they sold out on New Year's Day. Here's some big news. Starting in January, The Sound of Young America will become Bullseye with me, Jesse Thorne. A special thank you to all of the hundreds of Sound of Young America listeners who help suggest new name ideas and uh, vet the possibilities and help us think about the various considerations and whatnot and heretofore. That's it. The Sound of Young America, now Bullseye. Same great Sound of Young America content, now with a name that you're less embarrassed to say out loud. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. Gift memberships available. More information at putthison.com. And by 
Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician and record producer, Niall Rogers. We left off talking about his days ruling the world of disco in the band Chic. Things were changing in uh, pop music as the idea of a dance club where DJs played records became central to people's experience of pop music relative to, say, hearing a song on the radio or going to see a band. And part of what that allowed was something that I think was central to what Chic was, which is it it allowed for a, a band to exist as much as a concept or a sort of set of aesthetic values, you know, visual and musical and the whole nine yards, as as a group of people. So Chic were largely invisible. I mean, y- your shows were essentially an effort to create a live version of, a, of the album covers that didn't feature right. any, any of you. Right. That's a really interesting idea to me, that you could start a band that, that almost removes the people from the equation right you you're you're really i love talking to you you're great man this is i'm not going to get any sleep today um that's you got it spot on what happened was the etiology of that concept was uh, i went to um a show in london to see roxy music and the roxy roxy music was playing at this joint called the roxy theater or the roxy hole or something and and when I got in there, I had never heard of Roxy Music prior to this. Um, the girl I was dating took me there um, to see these guys. And when I got inside, I had seen something that was sort of familiar, like what I had seen at the Apollo, you know, because everybody came in with their shtick and their costumes and the whole bit. But once they got off stage, then somebody else came on. But Roxy Music, they presented what I started to call... Um, a total immersive artistic experience. Like when you walked inside, it was amazing. The audience seemed like part of the vibe. Um, this sort of um, this textural music. It was it was almost spiritual, I have to say. And then when we put our our chic, sophisto funk band together, because we sort of designed it. We had an outline. We had a a thumbnail concept of what it would be and we started to fit the pieces into the puzzle um i describe it was sort of like the magnificent seven you go out and you're looking for gunslingers and we found tony thompson first who had just come from labelle so he was into the fantasy fusion thing so that was cool um then we found rob sabino and rob sabino is the real sort of under sung hero in chic because rob sabino turned us on to his buddy Ace Fraley's band which was Kiss and when we went to see Kiss pow all of a sudden it was clear as a bell these guys were on stage it was almost like a carnival where they come to town you get immersed in the world of Kiss and they pack up and go to the next town and I just looked at Bernard and said this is it we have to do this and Bernard agreed because Bernard knew that I didn't look like him or act uh, I didn't act like him and he certainly didn't look like me or act like me, but 
we could create this thing where we both could come together and be those guys. We were role playing and we could both put on suits. We could pretend that we were Cab Calloway or something like that. But the modern version of Cab Calloway, a modern version of Count Basie. You know, Count Basie was the band leader. He sat there on the piano, but it was all the soloists and all those guys in his band that were the stars. He was the arranger. That's what Nile Rodgers was. Nile Rodgers was the songwriter, arranger. Bernard Edwards was the guy who was the band leader. And that's how our partnership worked so great. And at that point, um, you know, if you, if you look at the time period, you have this all-inclusive music, um, this all-inclusive scene. Didn't make any difference whether you're white, black, fat, dis, um, uh, gay, uh, lesbian, whatever. If you had music that kept people on the dance floor, you rule. We never had to explain it to the musicians. Like we never had to tell, um, you know, other musicians what what Chic was about and what our concept was about. And they never, they never really called us a disco band in the same way that you would call Cerrone disco. Cerrone is clearly disco. The Village People are clearly disco. We were this other funk dance thing, which now. I will call disco because everybody keeps doing it. So forget it. You can't beat them. Join them. One guy told me that our music was what they called black disco. I went, oh, guys, come on. I want to ask you. I want to ask you about that part of it, because disco at its height in, you know, 1978, 1979 was getting it from two sides. One side was this return to rock and roll that spawned Disco Sucks, the Disco mm-hmm. Sucks movie. Right. That was, I think, I think we can say now, 30 years later, in, informed you know, partly by people's aesthetic preferences, but also partly by a combination of, of racism and homophobia. Yeah. People who w- did not like the idea of a world where everybody came in together that's in that right. way that you and described. And that Sylvester could outsell the Rolling Stones. Yeah, but the <laughs> the... The other way that disco was getting it was from um, people who saw themselves as defenders of blackness, mm-hmm. um, who did not like the way disco essentially deracinated, took the race out mm-hmm. of dance music. So, you know, like like Funkadelic had a character named the Anti-Disco Kid. Right. And so... Th- there there are these two forces pushing against disco. And I wonder, I mean, I, I think that we hear a lot about the one where, uh, you know, meathead rock and rollers are burning disco right. records. But as a guy who thought of himself partly as being in a funk band, how did you feel about that pressure coming from the other side that you were you had come from this musical movement in 1973 where, you know, blackness was central? Right. To black popular music in 1970. Could not have been more, you know. I'm black and I'm proud. That's right. But then five years later, part of what disco was about was eliminating race from the conversation. But but, And and you're absolutely right. So there's two great examples for me. Um, At the same time, there was Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Curtis Mayfield wrote, if there's a hell below, we're all going to go. And it was from this, it's the same era. Um, We did a show in San Diego one year where we were opening for Marvin Gaye and Marvin had never heard of us really. And uh, 
Anyway, we played. We got a huge standing ovation. Um, years later, when I thought that Marvin Gaye hated us because the San Diego show was unbelievable. If you look at any of the Chic tour books and, you, and they ask the members of Chic, what's the most memorable show? It's San Diego, California. So years later, somebody asked Marvin Gaye how he felt about disco and did he like any disco music? And he says, well, you know, there is one band I like. One band, Marvin Gaye. And I'm like going, what band is that? And he says, Chic. And he says, yeah, Chic. They really do some interesting stuff with. I mean, you can you can find the interview. It's on record. I couldn't believe it. I, I just found this out when I was doing this book. And I thought, wow. You know, because Marvin Gaye would have been in the other side that was anti the, the four and the floor, the anti. Um, not as an artist, he wouldn't be anti Sylvester. I mean, believe me. Anybody like Marvin, anybody like Sylvester, you had to have respect for him um, because, you know, the artists that were those uh, the early sort of disco pioneers that were obviously gay and blah, blah, blah. I mean, have you have you ever listened to the Village People's first album? I think it's sheer genius. Um, and I also think that it's it's that kind of record that was so brilliant and so popular that it does put people on edge. They don't want to believe that gay people can come up with something that's that incredible, that that so holistically defines where they're coming from and doing it, do it in such an artistic way that the deep hidden meaning of that project almost becomes irrelevant. Like, you know, when you think about the New York Yankees adopting YMCA as they, and they have umpires who are basically guys who go D's, them and those on the field going, YMCA. I mean, one of the things that's, I think, so powerful about it is that it is something those most powerful moments in disco are, a lot of them are super, super gay, culturally right. come from right. yeah. just super gayness. Yeah. And they are uniting people who, especially in 1979, but even today, are very uncomfortable. That's right. With that word. I mean, when you think about it, when we wrote We Are Family for Sister Sledge, we honestly were just writing an R&B breakdown dance record for a group of sisters that we had never met, but we saw these girls as a cutting-edge family like the Jackson 5. So it was sincere. We were trying to define these girls that were on the cutting edge, defining that lifestyle. And of course, we know that when it comes to fashion, there are a lot of gay voices in fashion. When it comes to that sort of cutting edge visual arts coming together, there's a gay undercurrent, if not a frontal gay thing. And my favorite thing in life was to watch the Pittsburgh Pirates sing I Got All My Sisters With Me. Bernard and I used to laugh our asses off. It was hysterical. We used to say, look at these big, burly men who are probably some of the most macho dudes in America, especially Willie in those Stargill, days. right? Like 6'5", right. 250. Right, yeah, like a million pounds. Looks like a sumo wrestler. And they're all going, We are family. <clears throat> I got all my sisters with me. And Nard and I used to crack up because if you went to a gay club and played that, you'd see people who were flamboyant singing the same song with the same um, zeal. And that's what we really believed in. And that's what the disco movement gave everybody. 
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, my guest is Niall Rogers. His book is called Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. You uh, wrote and uh, produced uh, one of the all-time great gay anthems. <laughs> I'm coming out. Okay, which is I'm, I'm coming out. Let, let's, take, let's take a little bit of a listen to, uh, to Diana Ross and I'm coming out. First of all, tell me whether Diana Ross, at the peak of her divaness, at the apex of her celebrity <laughs> and just control of the world, A, knew and understood that this was basically a gay song, and B, if she did, what did she, what did she think about that idea? And where did, this, where did this even come from that you were going to write this record for? All right, so here's the deal with that. Um, the, all of the coolest clubs in New York catered to a crowd that went to go there to socialize and hide from the mainstream or go to a place where they could be accepted as a mainstream. So there was a, a, a transvestite club called the Gilded Grape. Now, when I say transvestite club, that's not fair because anybody could go to the Gilded Grape. And matter of fact, everybody went to the Gilded Grape. It was happening. I went there to pick up girls. It was a happening <laughs> spot. Um, but there were not insignificant number of trans. Yes, there was a fair amount. Absolutely. They, you might even say they were the club's raison d'etre. Yeah, that's exactly. And they <laughs> actually called those places tranny clubs or transvestite clubs. or There was a million names, but basically that's, that's uh, who was there. So I happened to be in the bathroom on one of the rare occasions that I used the bathroom for actually you know, going to the toilet. <laughs> um, and I happened to notice that on either side of me, I was flanked by uh, a minimum of two um, Diana Ross lookalikes. And I, I really <laughs> believe that it was three or more, but I will say, you know, conservatively, it was just two. But it was still enough for me to get that light bulb over my head and go, oh, my God, what if Diana Ross, because we were working on her record at the time, I was like, what if Diana Ross was either gay or she at least acknowledged um, you know, the, the gay movement and how, um, how much they idolize her. And she's like an important part. That's an important part of her fan base. So I called Bernard and I says, what if we did a song called I'm Coming Out? And he looked at me and he says, damn, that's a great idea. So we wrote it and did the whole thing, orchestrated it. Now, um, my technique is I never let the artists hear the records until it's time for them to perform because I want to get that, that spark. I want them to perform for me just as I perform for them when I'm making a record. I never want a demo. Don't, don't send me any demos. I'll play it on the spot. So Diana didn't appreciate it, but, you know, she came in and the first couple of songs that we had written made her really happy. So then we played I'm Coming Out. 
and she loved it. She, you know, she sang it, and she was into it. It was great. Anyway, she went. And she had a meeting with the number one DJ in America, who at the time was called named Frankie Crocker. And when she came back in the studio, her mood had changed considerably, and she was really upset. And she just said to us point blank, "Why are we trying to ruin her career?" We said, "Diana, what are you talking about?" Well, you know, Frankie told me that this is a gay song, and people are going to think I'm gay because I'm saying I'm coming out. And this is the one and only time in my career I have ever lied to an artist. But I looked Diana Ross straight in the eye and went, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> In 1983, you produced uh, David Bowie's best-selling record, and it, it had this amazing single on it uh, called Let's Dance, and I, I want to hear a little bit of this. There's something really interesting to me about this song because it came for you after disco had gone from everything to nothing in the space of, I don't know, two years maybe. And your power as ultimate hit maker with your partner Bernard Edwards had gone from, you know, just solid platinum, everything you touched, to not working anymore because people hate disco. Um, and there's something really amazing about this song, which is that I think that there is a really interesting contrast that a, a lot of, that became pop music, that became what you produced for Madonna and so on and so forth, that was more than just a white person doing black people music, I think. There's this element in this David Bowie song of the coolness of Bowie, the reserve, the rock star, a slightly off-center angularity of Bowie, as a contrast with, you know, like a, what sounds in some ways like a uh, what sounds in some ways like a dance record, in some ways like you know, like it's Twist and Shout or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is that was a new thing. And I somewhere in here you you mentioned Bowie describing it as like a postmodern reconstruction of dance music. That is what it sounds like because of that 
I mean, not dissonance. It's a combination of dissonance and consonance of that coolness, that pulling back and that pushing forward that comes from dance music. The the interesting thing about uh, the Let's Dance project was when David and I started working on that project before one note of music was determined uh, to be on that record. All we did was research. And when David was studying himself, I was studying David. He was showing me what the past was because we could only show the past, right? That's, that's what we, everything that we could listen to and watch was something that was documented. And we were taking these documents uh, to use as the blueprint to go into the future, to this new place. And it was really interesting how the first night David and I met, all we did was talk about jazz, from the most avant-garde to almost the most straight-ahead and commercial. David even instructed me to make hits. I mean, literally, he said, "Not, nah, I want you to do what you do best. And I was offended. I said, what do you mean? You, you, you know, I was an artist. You don't know what I do best. The world doesn't know what I do best. I've never been unleashed on the world with my genius. <laughs> I was like, no, you make hits. Oh, really? Yeah, but... I've never made a record that's been a pop record that's that avant-garde with that little pocket trumpet solo at the beginning. I mean, you know, yeah, come on. But only Bowie and guys like that can get away with it. Um, you know, Bowie said to me something really fantastic when we were doing uh, Let's Dance. He says that uh, he's, never been, he's never been placed in a box. He's never felt that to make music he has to do what people expect him to do or even what people think he should do. He says he always does whatever it is that makes him feel good. Basically, I'm paraphrasing him poorly, but that's what he was saying. And that gave me a lot of strength when we did Let's Dance because it made me believe that, wow, I could work with this guy who I call the Picasso of rock and roll and make pop songs, but they'd be uniquely his. Nothing sounds like Let's Dance in, in my repertoire. It's the only thing that sounds like that, and that's because it was for Bowie. Nothing sounds like I'm coming out because it was for Diana Ross. Nothing sounds like we are family because it was for Sister Sledge. I want to ask you one last thing, which is that you, uh, like about a year ago, you had major cancer surgery. Yes. Um, And you had by then already spent years um, looking at your life Mm -hmm. in order to write this book, interviewing family members and all the people that you knew and, and that kind of thing, as well as just spending time with your recollections and you had had this life that at times you know at the height of your addictions was just insanely wild and flirted with death death every day but you never yourself had run into that wall um but i wonder how having that having that experience of mortality changed both how you looked at, at your life in the past mm-hmm. and how you looked at how you wanted to use the life that you have in the future. Well, <laughs> that's like the greatest question. Um, the life that I want in the future, actually, I wrote about it today on the airplane flying in to Los Angeles that, uh, and I, I, I say this with 100% sincerity, that the life that I want for myself now is however the Grim Reaper um, 
whenever the Grim Reaper decides to claim me and keep me for good, um, I just want to be able to, to play songs when I'm doing it. If I lose the ability to play music, um, I, I'll probably be, I don't mean to be so fatalistic and end the interview on such a wacky note, but I'm really as good as dead then. Uh, I live for music. It's probably unfortunate that um, I'm so, that myopic, but I don't really mean that. I have a lot of interest, but I could live without those other inter- interests. I cannot live without music. I, I can't live without being able to play music. Now, what does that mean? I don't have to be a star. I don't have to make hit records anymore. I just have to be able to pick up the guitar and practice. Well, Niall, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sound of Young America. Thank you, man, for having me. This has been really great. Niall Rogers' new book is called Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember, all good radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, Sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answer Service. Hey, guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? (laughs) That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. Sorry.